0: Welcome to Prima's 2019 podcast series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education at Prima. On this Prima podcast, Lisa Ann Bickford will discuss disaster recovery and workers' compensation. Lisa Ann is the Director of Workers' Compensation, Government Relations at Coventry Healthcare. We will also be joined by Taekwon Gilbert, Prima's Education Coordinator. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Lisa Ann, thank you for joining us today. What were the impacts of Hurricane Harvey on the state of Texas, and what was the gubernatorial response?
2: This is a topic that we have been looking at extensively lately, and we started looking at Hurricane Harvey as sort of a benchmarking example of a disaster, a regulatory response to that disaster following a proclamation from the governor and some different aspects that come from that. So that's why we're going to start with Hurricane Harvey. So Hurricane Harvey was back in August of 2017. The hurricane was very short in terms of duration, but its intensity was unlike any that we've ever seen. 27 trillion gallons of rain were dumped on Texas in only six days. 51 inches of rain fell in Houston alone, And I'm sure you probably saw a lot of the televised coverage of Hurricane Harvey. You could see entire freeways underwater, cars underwater, massive flooding on a scale that had never been seen prior to. Also during the hurricane, 122,300 people had to be rescued from their homes and businesses due to the flooding, but really the pace at which the flooding suddenly came upon the city. The city was really ill-equipped to handle that much water in that quick of an amount of time. So it resulted in a lot of people having to be rescued and a lot of first responders becoming involved in in the process. More than 210,700 homes were also destroyed during Hurricane Harvey, again, in a very, very short period of time, which is, as we'll discuss in a moment, part of what led to the comprehensive nature of response that was necessary by the TDI to respond. At its apex, it became a category four hurricane with 130 mile an hour winds and 72 fatalities to date, one of the worst natural disasters that's ever befallen Texas. So in response to, well, and the other Southern states too, of course. So in response to Hurricane Harvey, the governor immediately intervened and issued a disaster proclamation for 30 Texas counties. And that was issued on August 23rd of 2017. it was interesting because at the time that it was issued, it was in anticipation of what was then called a tropical depression and had not even yet been upgraded to a hurricane. And that was even before they knew just how devastating the impacts were going to be but as you'll see as a theme that we're discussing here, Texas was operating from a position of trying to be proactive. Obviously they were intricately involved with NOAA and the federal government and were well aware of what was heading their way. And without even knowing what the devastation would eventually be, they took action swiftly. So again, the disaster proclamation had been issued for the 30 counties in advance on August 23rd of 2017, all the counties were listed specifically that anticipated to be impacted at that point and the grant of authority from the governor was really quite broad in nature and it basically allowed the different administrative state agencies within texas to pursue whatever means was appropriate to respond to the disaster and obviously since every agency has a different hand in the disaster. The different ways that were interpreted varied from department to to department. But for the purposes of our discussion, since we're focusing on workers' compensation, I'm gonna talk the most about the TDI and the Texas Department of Insurance and what their response
1: was. How did the commissioner in the state of Texas for TDI and workers' comp respond to the governor's disaster proclamation? And how did the TDI operationalize the commissioners' directives?
2: I'm glad you asked. This is a really important point. So we have a state that sees a disaster coming. The governor's office takes proactive steps to set them into a state of readiness in anticipation of then what became a hurricane making landfall. So then it was up, as I mentioned, to the various departments within the state to figure out what to do to help the state overall and to help operationalize the directive that came from the governor's office. So from our point of view in workers' compensation, what we were most focused on was the Texas commissioner's bulletin number, B Light like Boy, 002017 from the TDI that was issued on August 29th of 2017. And this was a very notable action that was taken by Commissioner Brannan who was heading up the workers' comp uh, part of the TDI at the time that the disaster issued. As I mentioned a moment ago, the governor's proclamation was on August the 23rd, and it took only six calendar days for the TDI to issue their bulletin on August 29th, which basically told those of us that were stakeholders in the workers' compensation system What is it that we need to be thinking about in terms of particular impacts to workers' compensation associated with responding to the natural disaster? So among the provisions that were contained in the bulletin, it had required carriers to continue benefit delivery in affected counties. And that seems like it might be straightforward, but when you consider the fact that areas such as Houston, which was a very populated area, Which um, theoretically could have had a number of injured workers prior to the disaster that were already in the system, trying to continue benefit delivery to those affected claimants in those counties was a challenge. So it was much more, it was a much broader scale impact than might be thought of at first blush. Secondly, the bulletin waived penalties and restrictions for claimants that were seeking emergency and non emergency care in non-networked facilities and or with non-network providers. This just kind of makes some common sense, and we'll talk about the broader implications of this concept later for other states, but certainly in a situation where we have a large presence of networks, and in Texas, of course, we have the HCN. There are other states like California that have the, the managed care networks or the MCN or MPN, rather, managed provider networks, and a number of other states have a comparable offering. And what do we do in the event of a natural disaster where a previously assigned network provider is either no longer able to provide care and or you have a displaced worker who doesn't have their home anymore, so where they had been seeking medical care was not an option for them, or any one of those other options? I mean, there's a million. There can be a situation where the provider is still standing and the records are lost or the providers had to relocate and move to another state or another area temporarily since they've been displaced, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So having a process in place for claimants to seek care outside of the network is an important consideration. Also within the bulletin were extended deadlines for medical examinations. Texas is a very highly regulated state with a lot of very specified timeframes. And in response to the hurricane, it was understood that sometimes those timeframes couldn't be met, either for practical reasons such as the provider's office no longer existed and or some of the issues that we touched on before, such as that the claimant may have had to be relocated to a completely different area, either in a shelter or in another alternate housing arrangement. Then another important point is on the pharmacy side. The Commissioner's Bulletin authorized payments to pharmacies for up to a 90-day supply of prescriptions subject to the remaining number of days authorized by the prescriber, and that was regardless of the most recent refill date. And by that, I mean, let's say that you have an injured worker who was already in the system, who a week before the hurricane struck went to their regular Walgreens or wherever they fill their prescriptions for their standard medication. The hurricane hit, they lost their medications and or only had part of it or any other kind of scenario that you can possibly imagine, This was specifically designed to help those claimants that were already in the system to not only go and replace medication that they may have had that was displaced as a result of the hurricane. It was also designed to extend the day's supply because the reality was when they were operating under those circumstances, no one really knew for sure what the time horizon was going to be before we would be back to sort of a more normal, if you will, processing of prescriptions and, and standard operating procedure. So there was kind of a twofold thinking with that. So another major provision would be expedited change of address processing. And that's on the TDI side as well as for carriers. Obviously we had a lot of people that were suddenly displaced and had to move quickly. And when you've already have a situation where they may be compromised medically For a number of reasons, either their medications, access to their providers, et cetera, et cetera, or transportation. The idea behind the expedited address, change of address processing was to help those folks to get back on track as quickly as possible. A few other points that I will mention, the Texas side, I mentioned they are a highly regulated state. So in addition to specified procedures for different aspects of claims handling, they also have a lot of regulatory deadlines and many of those were told in the wake of the hurricane. Firstly was the work comp claim notification and filing deadlines. Well obviously we had a number of first responder claims that I can talk about in a moment that came out of Texas following the hurricane um, in addition to just your regular volume of claims that normally process. But it wasn't just providers and claimants that were adversely impacted by the hurricane. Of course there were payers that were impacted as well. So for the system overall, tolling that deadline is very helpful. Related to that, of course, medical billing deadlines. There are very strict requirements in Texas for medical billing. Those were told also to assist some providers that were adversely impacted. Also true with respect to medical and income benefit payment deadlines, although, as I said on the, uh, a few moments ago, there was definitely support from the part of the TDI to try and make sure that those claimants were receiving that continue to receive their indemnity payments that they may have been receiving prior to the hurricane. And although the technical deadlines were told, there definitely was a reach out on the part of TDI to try to make sure that those claimants still received their indemnity payments. A couple other things that were told, electronic data reporting deadlines, also medical and income benefit dispute deadlines. So just like we have issues getting things sent out to folks we had some issues in the event that a dispute arose, and meeting those deadlines became challenging. So that was another thing that the TBI responded in to try and help people out in the system overall.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this Prima podcast. I would like to take a moment and invite you to Prima's 2019 annual conference, June 9th through 12th, in Orlando, Florida. Here are some words from Prima's Meetings Director, Monique Gilliam, regarding Prima's 2019 Annual Conference. If you haven't heard, Prima's exhibit booth sales are now open. We are over 50% to capacity and space is filling up fast, so reserve your spot today by visiting www.primacentral.org and clicking the Annual Conference tab. We'll see you in Orlando. To learn more about Prima's 2019 Annual Conference, visit primacentral.org.
1: What was the impact of the campfire in California, and what was the state response?
2: California is a very different scenario. We're going to talk about the campfire for a minute to set the scene for what happened in California and then use that to compare with the Texas model and see where some lessons learned possibly could have been gleaned on the California side. So for the campfire, there were 81 deaths associated with the campfire, And that fire claimed more victims in California than the previous three worst wildfires combined. It was the standout worst natural disaster from a wildfire standpoint that the state had ever seen. 18,421 structures were destroyed during the campfire, which made it more destructive from a property standpoint than the state's seven next worst fires combined. And bear in mind that all of that destruction occurred during the course of only two weeks. So it's sort of that in that sense, it is similar to Harvey, where it was a, a large amount of widespread destruction in a very, very abbreviated period of time. Just the structure loss alone associated with the campfire was more than three times the toll from the previous fall's Tubbs fire in Napa and Sonoma, and quite frankly, the state hadn't even really gotten to a point where it had recovered from the tubs before the campfire happened, and it was less than a year later. At its apex, the number of acres that burned grew more than 350% between the first day and the second day, so the rapidity with which the fire spread was startling and required a very quick response time on the part of the first responders in California. Interestingly, on the healthcare side, something that we don't often think about, but Campfire took out a hospital, Adventist Health Feather River Medical Center was damaged, and the patients had to be evacuated. So when we talk about like looking at things from a healthcare perspective associated with a natural disaster, we don't often think oh, what happens if the medical care support system goes away? So Campfire presented some challenges, again, with the rapidity of which the flames spread, and the uh, ability to the for the community to respond for the medical personnel was hampered to the point where some of the evacuated folks from Feather River Medical Center actually set up a triage of sorts in a parking lot to try and help all the fire victims that could not go to the hospital, but still required medical care. So they, they tried their very, very best to respond in a situation that was very difficult to deal with. Furthermore, there was the Far Northern Regional Center, which was serving patients with autism and developmental disabilities. It was completely destroyed, um, which had a huge impact to that community. The impacts were so broad as to result in a disruption of telepsychiatric services and on-site medical and records, onsite medical and pharmacy records. So that is another large-scale regional center that had been impacted by the fire, and again, in a very, very, very short amount of time. So shortly thereafter, on November the 9th of 2018, Acting Governor Newsom declared a state of emergency for Butte County, which is where Paradise, California, which was a town that was destroyed almost to the completely to the ground, a town of 27,000 people in very short amount of time. The acting governor at that point declared the state of emergency. And then the question is, if we look back towards Texas and the TDI, what do you do? So what does one do, when the state of emergency has been declared at the state level, what happens to displaced workers and displaced medical facilities, like we talked about, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that have been impacted from a workers' compensation standpoint? Well, that's something that we're going to explore a bit in a moment and talk about what can be done as a lessons learned in California and the lessons learned for other states who might be having to find themselves in a situation such as this.
1: So how could the Texas model have been applied in California, and what benchmarks can be established for jurisdictions interested in disaster recovery regulations?
2: You know, that's that's a really good question. I think we've got some great lessons learned and benchmarks that we can take away from what happened in Texas and apply the model to California. Immediately following the disaster, some folks within our company, as well as a number of others I know, reached out to California's version of the TDI to see if there was a, a coordinated agency response comparable to that, which we just talked about in Texas. And we were told that there weren't, but this is something that we can think about going forward from a regulatory standpoint, as well as an operational standpoint. So certainly, delivery of benefit checks and necessary medical care, which was part of the directive that came from Texas, would be something that could be explored in California. There has been discussion of electronic delivery of indemnity benefits, what happens in a situation where someone can't get to their normal banking, or we can't get them a check in the mail because their house has been destroyed. So there might be alternative ways to see that the claimant can receive that compensation. So that's certainly one thing that can be thought about. And this isn't just true for California, but really for anywhere facing a natural disaster Certainly, waiver of penalties and restrictions for out-of-network care, like we talked about in Texas. So, similar in California within the MTNs, if someone needed to get uh, medical assistance and their, uh, their networked provider was no longer available, then that's certainly something that could be provided for to ensure that those claimants receive the medical treatment that they need. Of course, we talked about the expedited change of address processing for obvious reasons, and extending deadlines for medical evaluations and all the various paperwork deadlines that we talked about before. So that includes filing of claims, and that's certainly very important for first responders that may have been injured, and we know there were a number of them following the campfires. So that's certainly something that we would consider. Of course, we talked about the medical billing deadlines and medical and indemnity payment deadlines. Again, all of those are things that that could be implemented in other states in a similar situation. Also, in California, they have a state reporting state, so electronic data reporting deadlines could be told in the wake of a disaster to help assist on the payer side, especially when you consider the fact that there might be delays in medical bill processing that we talked about a minute ago. Certainly that's going to spill over to state reporting on the back end, so that would be a logical extension of that. Also, in California, we can talk about dispute filing, just like we mentioned in Texas. In California, there are SBR and IBR timeframes, independent medical review or IMR, IMEs for unrepresented claimants. And, you know, it is not unusual for states to have all of those types of dispute resolution processes of one type or another, whether they call it independent bill review or something else. Certainly, that concept exists in other states and could be applied to other states.
1: What are some specific topics that stakeholders in the workers' compensation system should be thinking about as it relates to disaster recovery?
2: Using what we've talked about with respect to Texas and California, I think some things that we can think about from the 50,000-foot level from a jurisdictional or regulatory standpoint uh, are worth talking about. And uh, due to our time here today, we don't have time to discuss these in great detail, but I'm going to mention them as things to be thinking about and certainly things to perhaps pursue within your various states if you're interested in pursuing them. So here are some topics to think about. One is, what about coverage for workers that are located out of state temporarily after a disaster? So you may have a situation where an office is destroyed, such as in Houston, and they have to temporarily set up an office somewhere else for folks to work. So think about workers' compensation coverage for folks that may be technically located in one state but are temporarily displaced to another state, or even at an individual level. If a person is perhaps working from home and they no longer have home and they're displaced and they may have to work out of state, there are considerations to think about there. Secondly, are temporary changes in roles? If you think about this, you might have someone who was answering phones behind a desk, and that's certainly classified as one type of work, And all of a sudden, they have to grab a shovel and dig things out or carry boxes or anything that you can picture that someone might have to do associated with responding to a natural disaster where there are impacts to your place of work. That might certainly impact, at least temporarily, what it is that that you do on a daily basis for your job and what are the associated impacts that could be associated with that. That's certainly something worth thinking about. Carriers... Certainly have ways of responding to events such as these, and have have uh, different criteria for evaluating whether a given employee's role has changed significantly from a loss evaluation perspective. And it's something that certainly definitely should be thought about. There was also an article I read recently that I thought was interesting about disaster recovery employee leasing companies. So this is based on the PEO model I've talked about the most with respect to contractors. Often contractors are in the assigned risk pool, or that that secondary pool, and not uh, able to obtain primary work insurance. And sometimes those kinds of policies do not port across state lines, but you may be a contractor who's located in, say, Alabama, and a hurricane strikes Florida, and you're a roofer, and there's a huge, huge need for roofing assistance following this type of disaster, and from a business perspective, you might want to pursue it. And certainly from a humanitarian perspective, we would want to encourage that. So the question is, what about workers' compensation under those circumstances? And there are some specialized PEOs that have stepped in to try and fill the gap that may carry multi state coverage for workers' compensation to assist in situations just like that. But it's sort of an interesting concept to think about from a, not only a public policy standpoint, but also from a business standpoint, certainly. Couple other things that we can think about disaster planning and business continuity plans. Always better to think in advance instead of having to respond after the disaster has already struck. So that's certainly something we can be thinking about in this area. Then there are legal considerations. What about delays, change of venue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? There are some states that have been able to use things like remote hearings, and that can be utilized after a natural disaster, etc. That's an entire topic unto itself. Certainly, first responder claims and issues associated with first responder claims are always going to be important any that we have a natural disaster. And then, finally, I'm going to mention this, development of model legislation for use across multiple jurisdictions. You know, a lot of the things that we talked about that we saw in Texas, the disasters and the fires in California, certainly should give us pause about developing some sort of a model that could be used across jurisdictions. To help us think about what areas might be impacted from a workers' comp perspective following a natural disaster. And I think we can use some of the lessons learned from some of the disasters that have already happened to try and help other states going forward in the future.
0: We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks to our speaker and all of our listeners. Please visit the PRIMA website to hear other PRIMA podcasts, join upcoming PRIMA webinars read Prima blogs, and learn about other Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have an amazing day.